0: Let's pray together. Jesus, as we come to this um, part in the service, when we will be um, listening to your word, opening our ears to detect what it is that you are saying to us. We pray that uh, you would grant us by your Holy Spirit such a clear grasp of the things that you're saying through your word, that we would have a massive vision for who you are, And that would encourage us and motivate us, reorientate our lives around you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, we're looking at Romans uh, chapter 3 and uh, verses 9 to 11. You'll find it on page 940. In the Bibles. And as I was uh, thinking about how to explain this uh, this morning, one particular phrase came to my mind that is fairly current in contemporary thinking about religion. And that phrase is the phrase spiritual but not religious. Spiritual but not religious. There are many people today who classify themselves or are classified that way by people who analyze uh, social trends in our society. Uh, Sometimes they are called the nuns, not N-U-N-S-N-O-N-E-S, the the nuns. Uh, Because uh, when there's a survey that uh, indicates where you stand on a particular religious preference, they have a whole series of questions, don't they? And then there's a question box that right underneath says, none of the above, and they check that box, none of the above, hence the nuns. They are spiritual but not religious. People like my friend Jane, not her real name, Uh, Jane is someone who's interested in spiritual matters, but she has no time for what she, in her head, thinks of as the institution of the church. She enjoyed that movie, um, Eat, Pray, Love. I've never seen the movie, but she loved that movie. And uh, she lives a normal life in a prosperous suburb of a metropolitan area. If you ask Jane what she believes uh, and whether she believes in God, Jane would reply, yes. If you ask Jane whether she goes to church, uh, Jane would say, sometimes. In the way she conceptualizes it, uh, she's wary of some of the belief system that seems to go with certain kinds of conservative Christianity in in her thinking. She's wary of the political dimensions uh, of some of that in her mind. And she's fairly noncommittal politically as well as religiously. She's spiritual but not religious. Now, when Jane hears a word like sin, the word that's right at the heart of our passage this morning, Jane thinks that she is being shamed. Or that it refers to some particularly heinous crime, something that's really bad. And she's not really bad, she's a good person, kind, caring, thoughtful. And if the word sin was preached in a passionate way, Jane would think that she was being led on a guilt trip. She knows she's not perfect, but after all, who is, right? And if the standard is perfection, as she's heard the Christians say, she's not sure that's such a good idea. I mean, are we meant to be perfectionistic? Now, for every uh, Jane that you and I meet, there is a Bob. (laughs) Bob is another friend of mine. Again, not his real name, but uh, Bob is an avid churchgoer. Every time the doors are open, Bob's there. Now, uh, Jane would view Bob as a little too religious. Bob is committed to his local community and his local church. If you said to Bob that he was a sinner... Bob would think he was saying that he was not a Christian, or that he didn't go to church enough. You know, he was there Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, but he should have been there Friday as well. For Bob, sinners are other people, people who are outside his tightly interwoven network. I actually often think it would be interesting to have my two friends, Jane and Bob, sit down together and just watch them miscommunicate. It reminds me a little of uh, one time when we as a family had just flown back to England uh, for a vacation. By the way, this is an English accent, not Australian, in the case you didn't know. Um... And we'd flown into Heathrow, which is the the main airport in London, and we were waiting for our rental car. We'd arranged this. We were standing in line, obviously exhausted. Everyone is at that point, aren't they, after a long flight. And we're standing in line behind an American family who are getting equally frustrated. And there's a group of young lads from London, a particular area of London, that I immediately recognize, who are standing behind the counter trying to serve the American uh, family as the American family gets frustrated with them. And I can recognize the thought patterns of the young London lads, and I know what they're thinking as, uh, they, um, as they're trying to provide this service, as I from, was from the same kind of part of London. But also having been in America by then for about 10 years, I knew pretty much with a fair degree of certainty exactly what was so deeply frustrating the American family as well. I have to confess, I just sat back after a seven-hour flight looking exhausted, I just sat back and watched them miscommunicate (laughs) with a little twinkle in my eye. It was a a sort of delicious moment of (laughs) conflict. (laughs) And then it happened. Suddenly, the two worlds collided and I was at one with Chicago and London. I could see... (laughs) I could see life through both their lenses at once at the same time. (laughs) I'm just joking around, but I'm telling the story because it illustrates how difficult it is to really understand sin for both Bob and Jane. The passage we're looking at is Romans 3 verses 9 to 11, and I'm going to Read it for us now, then explain the text in context before we apply it. Here then is God's Word. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There it is. So first we'll look at the context then the text and then uh, seek to apply it together. First context. Well, Paul's in the middle, isn't he, of explaining why it is the good news of Jesus Christ is so motivating to him and therefore why it should be so motivating to us. He's announced... His theme in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. This gospel, this good news, he's not ashamed of it. In fact, he's glorying in it. So he announces this this gospel, this good news, a declaration of a right standing before God, the power of God for salvation by right standing before God through faith in Jesus. This is the good news of which he's not ashamed. And then he begins in his discussion, in his argument, to explain why it is that he is not ashamed, why it is so motivating, why it should be so motivating for anyone who truly grasps what this message really means. And he begins by doing that in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says that uh, we are all under the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness. See, And then Paul explains, doesn't he, how the whole world has rebelled against God. The pagan world, uh, he explains that throughout the rest of uh, chapter 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. And he explains all this. And then chapter 2, he begins to say what is true of the religious world as well you therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else he's thinking then of a religious person who's looking at those people who do those horrible things and says well when you judge someone else you break the law yourself perhaps in different ways but you do and then of course the question comes what if that's the case what's the point in uh, being a jew and Paul answers that by saying that a real Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is by the Spirit. That's true circumcision. That's being born again, as we call it. That's the new life. That's the, what all these external signs are pointing to this reality, this regeneration, this new thing, this new creation that God is doing in those who trust in Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 29. And then Paul replies, in the first few verses of chapter 3, Paul replies to some objections to this. And he says, well, okay, so maybe not everyone does faithfully do what God asks them to do in his word. But God is faithful to God's word even if people are not. And so it's a deep encouragement. He is faithful to his word even when people are not. And then he circles around that and clarifies that. And then we come to our text, verse 9. What then are we any better off? Now once we see that text in its context, as we're doing right now, it's context, you can pretty much immediately begin to see the primary and most important thing about correctly understanding sin. That is, that sin is not about comparing ourselves to other people. See, when you and I hear that word uh, sin or that we are a sinner, what happens? Well, we immediately tend to think, well, hold on here, I'm a little bit better than that person down the road. Who are you calling a sinner? I mean, what about them? But Paul then, you see here, Paul goes through all the other people you could possibly think of and he shows that they're not righteous either and then begins to conclude by asking whether we are any better off. And the answer is no. So here's the resistance to understanding sin is that we think, when we use that kind of language in religious circles, that what we're saying is that certain people are sinners and certain other people are not. Paul's saying over and over again, that's to misunderstand what he's trying to communicate. Sin does not mean pointing out someone else's mistakes in the biblical understanding of sin. No, it means understanding the common condition of humanity, old and young, boy and girl, Greek and Jew, religious and non-religious. He covers absolutely everyone that he can think of. And then he asks, well, are we any better now, the translation adds in the word Jew, interpreting uh, that text to mean that Paul's thinking now of the Jews, which is certainly a valid option and possible. Another option is that Paul's thinking of himself or him and the other apostles, which I, I think for various reasons is a little unlikely. What is most likely, in my view, is that this part is deliberately nonspecific. See, I look at this as a preacher, as Paul's a preacher. That's how this passage preaches best. If you read it out, you can sense what Paul's doing, I think. As you read it, a section, he says, not these people, not these people, not those people. Now, if you're preaching that, the natural thing for the audience, the congregation, to think is, oh, there's some other group to which the preacher probably thinks he belongs who are righteous. That's the natural thing you and I would think, hearing that sort of message. And so Paul says, are we any better? No, we're not. So this is not a matter of making some group feel worse than another group. This is a matter of the common condition of humanity. It's not a guilt trip. It's like saying humans cannot naturally fly. It's a description of fact. Or humans cannot naturally breathe underwater. They're not like fish. So they don't have gills. They, they can't do that unless they have some other equipment to help them breathe. That, that's not a guilt trip. It's a description of what Paul takes to be a fact of life. Now, you and I who are Christians here this morning cannot say this too much because it is constantly and consistently misunderstood in our culture today, I think. See it all over the place. We find it in families. Don't you? I mean, children are sinners. They get into trouble and put into timeout. But parents, they never need to go to timeout. Parents are sinners too. As are children. Pastors are sinners too. Ministers are sinners. Elders are sinners. Christians are sinners. Now, Christians also have a right standing before God and being declared righteous and have God's Holy Spirit within them so that they have the power to respond to a call to obedience with increasing levels of holiness and godliness, but they're also sinners, uh, you, may have been, you may know there's been a little bit of a debate in the int, on, on the Internet. You know, you heard about that, the Internet, that little thing? Um, in the blogosphere recently, a little debate about whether Christians can be called sinners, which is amazing because as that debate has gone backwards and forwards, it has become self-evidently clear by the way the debate is being handled that clearly sinners, Christians are sinners. <laughs> Non-Christians are sinners. As well as Christians, Jews are sinners. Greeks are sinners. Are we any better? Whichever group you have left in your head, you know, you know I mean, Americans are sinners. English are sinners. Canadians are sinners, especially when they say "a" after every word. <laughs> uh, 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 Australians are sinners. New Zealanders are sinners. Heterosexuals are sinners, as are people who call themselves gay. Chinese are sinners. Mexicans are sinners. Politicians are sinners. Lawyers are sinners. I mean, some things are easier to believe than others, right? Bankers are sinners. Tax collectors are sinners. Are we any better? Nope. No one. Not one. None at all. It's like saying humans cannot naturally swim underwater without extra apparatus to help them breathe because they're not fish and they don't have gills. It's like saying you cannot naturally fly without some extra apparatus to help you fly. It's not a guilt trip. It's a fact of life, Paul was saying. And now we begin to move to the text because the text begins to explain how this is a fact of life. So looking at verses 9 to 11 of chapter 3, and you may wonder why we divided the passage for this week ending at verse 11. And this is because the section is divided into three parts. The first part, verses 9 to 11, is the general description of this fact of life, everyone being a sinner, not, not a guilt trip, but a fact of life. It's a general description, verses 9 to 11. Then verses 12 to 17, there are the specifics, and Paul goes through those specifics and then concludes in verse 18 with the cause, there's no fear of God uh, before uh, their eyes. So this week we're looking at the general statement, and then next week we'll look at the particularities and the cause, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's why it's divided like this. Now, the general statement is divided into two other parts. The first is saying we're under sin, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And the second is saying that there's none repeated over and over again for whom this is not true. Together, those two are intended to do something. They're intended to make it clear that there are not exceptions to this principle, that this is a state of who we are as humans. It's like gravity. You know, if you went in some place in the world and you took an apple and you dropped it off a table and the apple just floated in midair right there, you would, might question whether gravity was a law. But if every single time you take an apple and it falls to the ground, you begin to wonder whether there's a law or principle behind that, if in every single city, in every single person's life, in every single family, in every single home, in every single country that there has ever been, the apple falls to the ground. Maybe the Bible's right. Now I want you to see then first this description of under sin. Carefully chosen phrase by Paul. And it's different from the way many people understand sin, <laughs> this phrase, under sin. Paul's saying that this is a state, a realm, a place. So in, in a biblical way of thinking, the whole world is divided only into two. The world is not divided by class or race or culture or n- nation or age or whether you like Miley Cyrus or Justin Bieber or you prefer Shakespeare. Simply whether you're under sin or under grace. There's no other place to live or be or exist. We're either under sin or under grace. Of course, that means that you cannot be half a Christian. either under sin or under grace. It means this is not a matter of behavior first. Obviously, Christians do need to follow Jesus. They do need to respond to calls to obedience by the power of the Spirit to put an effort and grow in their, in their discipleship of Jesus. But this is a matter of position, of state, of realm, of who is our Lord. We are either under sin or under grace. Jesus is either our Lord or sin is our master. It's a question of state, of realm, of being, of place, of position. Not first of all, of behavior. We're sinners because we sin, not the other way around. Naturally we are under sin. It's not a behavioural issue. We're not just sinners because we sin, we're sinners because we, we sin because we're sinners. Naturally. We're at state realm, place. I want you to really grasp what Paul's saying here about under sin, not just by the simplicity of perhaps that little phrase, I just, I think, misquoted first but got it right second time round. but under sin, whole world then is divided only into two. Pretty big implications to that as we will see. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 14 to show there's no exception. And that's where he says, as it is written. It's a quotation from that psalm, Psalm 14. But Paul inserts into that quotation a particularly key word for him, that word righteous. It's it's inserted by Paul into his quotation from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And he does it to set up his argument to emphasize how righteousness comes by faith in Jesus so he, he drops this word, which is key for him, righteous, into this quotation. So that gradually when we come to the righteousness of God that is given to us through faith in Jesus, we'll be prepared to understand just how amazing that is that we have his righteousness. Just by a little insertion of a word. And then he concludes... No one seeks God. Now that needs some explaining. It doesn't seem self-evidently to be true. And I've even told you before of a friend, I came across in a Muslim country, who have been seeking God in prayer, asking God to send him to tell him someone about Jesus, uh, tell him about Jesus, and I did. And, uh, uh, and that kind of seeking happens all the time. In, 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 in fact. We know, don't we, that there are many other religions when people are apparently in some sense seeking after God. Also within uh, Christian circles we use the term seekers to mean people who are not yet Christians but who are interested at least somewhat in spiritual things. So what does Paul mean here? Are we thinking wrongly about this matter of seeking or are we using the term in a different way to which he is using it? probably a little bit of both. Look at it like this. We're all made in the image of God. There's not a single person for whom this is not true. And that means we are all built to worship. Every single person worships, whether they worship God or they worship career or money or nature. We're all worshipers. But we are also all fallen. We're sinners. So we also have a broken image. And so this worship tendency is now, it's miscued. We're worshipping, but it's not a rightly orientated worshipping. Our worship of gods is idol worship. And behind it all stands a sort of self-projection of the worship of self. We're seeking, but it's not true seeking. Now, those who have gradually been drawn to Jesus, uh, more accurately, we would say, they are those of the Spirit of Jesus we believe is at work in them, and he is stirring up within them a genuine seeking after God, so that, as Jesus says, he who seeks will find. But to say that someone has, we discern, the Spirit at work in their life so that they are genuinely seeking after God is a bit of a mouthful. So we just say, Seekers. However, when Paul here says no one seeks God, he means no one naturally in their own power genuinely seeks after God. Now, you and I need to let the shock of this text just hang for a moment in our minds. This means that there are no naturally... Good people. Or nice people. We're using those terms in this way. Of course, it's encouraging in some ways to someone like Jane. Jane should not be surprised when, in religious areas, she comes after some sort of seeking that is, frankly a little less than you would expect from the living God. No surprise. For we are all sinners. can be disappointing, but it's not surprising. Now we come to the application. Now when I say application, I don't mean, hold on guys, here's my opportunity to say what I really think rather than what Paul thinks. (laughs) What I mean is, here in this text, in the context that we've looked at, is how this passage is intended by Paul to speak. I think there are three areas that you can uh, discern as we pray for the Spirit to open our hearts to his word. This is the area of orthodoxy, unity, and outreach. See, why does Paul spend so long going through this issue of being under wrath or under sin? Why doesn't he just get on with it, you know? Isn't the good stuff in chapter (laughs) 5? I've come across people who've studied Romans in Bible studies, and they say, oh, it's a hard book, Pastor. You know, I'm praying for you. Or they say, it's so depressing. It's not depressing. Paul is spending this amount of time to help us understand a right understanding of sin, not as a guilt trip, but as a place, a state, a realm so that we can truly grasp the glory of which he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I found time and time again as I read through church history, as I travel around the world, got involved different, seen different religions, not got involved but seen different religions, how it is this issue that is often the key to a movement going Wrong. No one wants to talk about this stuff. Let's get on to the good stuff, right? Let's not mention sin in church. The people have had a tough week. Seriously, I've heard that in preacher's conferences. You know, everyone's had a tough week. You've just got to, you know, give them a good time. I want to give you a good time, but I want to do it biblically. Here's what happens, if our churches don't preach sin, or even mention sin, soon enough there'll be no cross. I mean, the cross will still be there, but we won't mention that either. Why? What's the point in the cross if we don't, have, don't understand sin? Why would the Son of God go to all the bother to die on the cross if it isn't for the sins of the world? Just because he had nothing better to do that Friday? I mean, you know. And so what you find is when churches begin to under-preach sin, they start to under-preach the cross. It's key to maintaining doctrinal orthodoxy in a Christian movement. And then, of course, Unity. Paul has spent some time trying to do this for the Church of Rome. As I say, in the context of Rome, it's one of the big issues that's going on there. There are these Jews and Greeks, and Paul goes on and talks about how Jews and Greeks need to get along in various ways, and he talks about different issues of idol worship and all this thing. But how does he start doing it? Jews are sinners. Greeks are sinners. Why is our society so divided? There's only only two realms, under sin under grace, we don't get that, we don't appreciate that, we don't sense that, we don't feel that, we don't have an affection for that, using Edwards' terminology. We don't wonder at the amazing truth that in Christ we can be one, as as the choir sang earlier. So you're looking for community. So many people are. It's one of the great attractions to the church today to find a community. It's true, we have community. We have small groups. We enjoy each other most of the time, you know. We love each other all the time. Even when there's some we find just a little bit annoying. <laughs> people come, they're looking for community. Oh yeah, we have that. Why? Because we understand you're either under sin or under grace. And as that concept becomes blurred in our society, you'll have increasing tribalism, increasing warring factions. Churches which struggle with unity often, I mean there may be some people just annoying to each other, but often they haven't got this clear. I think it's a group of nice people getting together, singing nice religious songs, rather than people who are either under sin or under grace. And if they're under grace, they are so amazed by that truth, they hardly even notice that that person in the pew opposite is not someone they naturally get along with. And when you mention to them, they just look at you strangely to think, well, what are you talking about? We're under grace. We're in Christ. So you have unity and community. That's why Paul spends so much time doing this at the beginning of his letter, because there were Jews and Greeks in that church, and then to outreach. Paul clearly wants the church at Rome to be this lighthouse church, but he wants them In order to do that, to understand how important it is that they are not ashamed of the Gospels. He is not ashamed. Well, why should they not be ashamed? Well, I want you to perform an exercise with me. I want you to imagine in your head someone you know, a friend, a colleague, who's not a Christian. You may yourself not be a Christian. Perhaps someone invited you to church this morning and, you, and they were so excited when you came. You're not sure why. You're about to find out. Is it true of that person that you're now thinking of? What Paul is saying here. And if it is, there could be nothing more important than evangelistic outreach, could there? Of course, it's just a case of religious behavioral modification and it's not that significant. But if this is true... Of course, it's all in God's sovereign hands, but we have a message to proclaim, and we're not ashamed of it, all because of what Paul is teaching, what he is teaching in this passage in context, as a text, in application, that's designed to help both my friend Bob and my friend Jane. Worship Jesus in abounding joy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that um, by your Spirit we would do that, that we would go out through those doors at the back of the church this morning with a vision an appreciation, a wonder at who you are because of who we are and how much we need you. Would you give us great clarity about this matter? Would you give us conviction of sin? True conviction by your spirit that leads not to discouragement, but new life. Lord Jesus, would you do that? Will you give us a passion for outreach and evangelism? Even if we don't do it in the best technique possible, we pray this that you, Jesus, would be honored. And we ask this in your name. Amen.